0: I'm Joe Thomas. I am a professor of History of Christianity at um, Urbana Theological Seminary, and it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. Um, I should forewarn you that at Urbana, our classes regularly run three hours long. Uh, I've been told, I think, three or four times this morning, I only have 30 minutes. And Joe, by the way, you got a clock. So there's a clock there. It just actually just started. So I'm I'm 10 seconds into this. So Um, I've also started a a new ministry called Life Together House that is really pertinent to what we're gonna be talking about today. Uh, And it relates to how do we uh, understand and uh, take the world where it is today and revitalize the church in a way that it can communicate to that world. Okay, so this is, this is an ongoing problem every generation faces. And this is, this is our generation, this is our moment, this is our time where we have to start thinking about, as Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, uh, developing a new language that is as shocking as the original language that Jesus spoke to the people around him. And I think that's really where we're at today and we need a new language. We need to proclaim the gospel again and again, but we're looking for a new language in which to do that. And so I've uh, titled this sermon, Revitalization Amidst the Church Struggle. Now you might be thinking church struggle, that's a old sounding word. Did I mention I'm a historian? And so church struggle is a word that reaches back over several different generations uh, in the history of our church. And so I hope to look a little bit at that struggle and then move into offering you some suggestions based on Acts 2 about how we can think about revitalizing the church in the moment that we're in. Okay, so let me say up front, <clears throat> I am the, uh, the worst person in actually living out the things I'm going to preach to you. So uh, I'm working on it myself and trying to reorient myself to what does it look like today to be talking to students, professors, really the community that we're in today. And so that's what I hope to do. Those, those two things based on the book of Acts chapter two. And so church struggle, we've had church struggles before. Uh, We had a large church struggle that started in the late 19th century, went through the 20th century. And it was when some in the church were trying to adapt or accommodate modernist thinking to the truth of Christianity. And some people called this liberal Christianity. And it was uh, a view a, uh, an impulse within the church that really took off during that time period. And uh, there was a church struggle. Where were you? Where did you stand? How were you supposed to talk to folks like that? And in this church struggle, uh, many in the modernist uh, accommodation church uh, were accommodating pretty serious things like who is Jesus Christ? Did the resurrection happen? Things of this nature, and that church struggle probably started to come to a close somewhere in the 60s and 70s. And what I want you to know is that that church struggle, that that move, that move to accommodate, really started to lose steam. So much steam that uh, the uh, uh, author, a scholar, was commissioned to try to study it and asked, "Why are conservative churches growing?" And why are we not growing? And this author came back with a pretty simple uh, answer to it. He said, churches that are biblically orthodox believe the Bible is the word of God. They actually have, when people come to church, they have a message of good news to them. And so we started seeing in the 60s and 70s and now into our time period, there's been a precipitous decline in modernist Christianity. Another church struggle was uh, during the time of Diedrich Bonhoeffer and under uh, the reign of Nazi Germany during the 30s and into the 40s. And there was a group called the German Christians, quote unquote, who were trying to accommodate Nazi ideology to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So they would have, I'm not kidding you, Hitler's Mein Kampf on the altar, swastika's, uh, the flag, up in, in the, uh, the sanctuary and they were proclaiming Hitler as the new, her- the, the herald of a new gospel. And this ended up in a mighty church struggle where a group pulled out and started calling themselves the confessing church. And that church ended up under severe persecution and um, barely hung on really. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself, of course, came to an untimely death. But he said this, a very interesting thing. He said, the church, He's speaking to his church, to the confessing church, to the church that was still trying to uphold biblical orthodoxy. He says, the church has failed to speak the right word in the right way and at the right time. She has not resisted to the uttermost the apostasy of the faith. And she has brought upon herself the guilt of the godlessness of the masses. The church has failed to speak the right word in the right way and at the right time. I think that's where we're at. That's where we're at. And I'm not suggesting to to you here today, I know exactly what those right words are, the right way or the right time. What I am suggesting to you is collectively, we have to start thinking hard about that and praying hard about that. Otherwise, we will be responsible for the guilt of a generation. Many of you know, this is an educated audience, a university audience. 40% of the students that attend over there have no religious affiliation. They have left the church, okay? And, and so we find ourselves then in a third struggle today, a third church struggle today. And I, I wanna call it tribalism versus biblical orthodoxy. Okay, now the tribalism takes lots of different sort of manifestations. It's gender and sexual, sexual ideologies. It's Christian nationalism and you throw in a pandemic and George Floyd, the events of George Floyd, and you have yourself a church struggle. My pastor, Pastor Randy Boltinghouse over at Windsor Road Christian Church, um, he told us two months ago, he said, you know, he goes, I used to pray to the Lord that he would give me just a few dedicated Christians to lead. And we could turn the world upside down. And then he turned to us, a church where the sanctuary is about one third full. And he said, here you are. Here you are. So this is, this is where we're at. This is where we're at. A church struggle. And we're trying to understand where have all the people gone? Where have all the people gone? And how do we communicate to those? And so I am going to use a word that uh, Trevor uh, asked me not to use because I used it too many times in a class that I taught once that he was in. <clears throat> he just said that this morning while we were over here and, I'm, and I was thinking, oh, I'm gonna actually use that word. <laughs> and uh, it's called catechism. And he said he used that word way too many times. And he said, but I find myself thinking about it. There's a new catechism going on. Catechism, what is catechism for those of us who didn't grow up in a more traditional sort of church, a catechism is religious instruction. And there's a new catechism that's going on. I want to get behind a little bit uh, the conversation about the the issues that we're wrestling with today. I want to get a little bit behind that. And I want to argue to you that there's actually a deeper problem that we're wrestling with. And it's, the catechism, the religious instruction that our people are listening to, viewing each and every day. And we're finding that on the internet, social media, uh, 24-hour news channels, you name it, you can find it. And what we are finding is that people are being catechized. They're receiving religious instruction outside of here and they're bringing it into the church sanctuary. And that's creating the church struggle. Who are we? What do we believe? They're bringing in a view of what to believe into this. And so uh, this, this, this struggle is real and serious. A, a, a couple of years ago, actually the fall right before, uh, COVID hit and shut everything down in March, 2020, I was invited into the University of Illinois into a journalism class to, uh, on diversity to speak about Christianity. You wanna know when you know you're a minority? When you're invited into a diversity class to speak on Christianity. That's when you know, you know you're a minority. That's who we are. That's who we are. Maybe we've always been that way. Maybe we've always been that way. But that is most decidedly who we are today. And so I said to them, you know, any questions before I get started? And this young man, I can still see him, he was right here. I was standing kind of in the middle, about 35 students, this young man raises his hand. I go, yeah. He goes, I just became a Christian this year and I think Trump is really bad for the church. What do you think? I said, thank you for that softball question. (laughs) I went on and I said, I'm gonna talk about American Christianity, your journalism majors. This is what you're probably mainly gonna be dealing with. And I started to explain the history of the American church and the great uh, activity of the church in the 18th and 19th and into the 20th century. And I was explaining to them uh, in all of our glory how, how we had been involved in social reform movements that had made the country a better place, a more just place. And and I thought, you know, this would be a way to kind of make contact with, with them. And about three fourths of the way through, a young lady all the way in the back, she raises her hand I go, yeah. She goes, is this real history? And I was like, yes, this is real history. And it was amazing because we had this great conversation and it was equally amazing because at one point in the conversation, another young lady right here, she turned to the whole class and she said, whatever you think about the church today, don't worry. The church will change. It always changes in our favor. And she was talking about uh, uh, a view was very much in many ways antithetical to to the gospel. And I thought, wow, only an 18-year-old could say that with such confidence, you know. But at the same time, I sat there, I stood there, and I thought, she's exactly right. She's exactly right. And she knew it. She had grown up in a church in the South. She knew exactly what she was talking about. And so, The question I have, many questions actually, is when people are being catechized outside of the church, why are they not coming to us and having the conversation? When I say us, I mean us, us Christians, as Christian leaders, people are in positions of leadership, or you're just being a faithful Christian. Why are they not? coming to us? Why are they going to people who they don't know on the internet? Why are are they going and listening on places in secret, and you don't hear about it until they've actually been catechized? I can tell you in my own personal experience, two good friends, if you'd asked me four or five years ago, you know, name 10 people that you would send people to in this town, they would have been on that list. They were catechized. And here's the thing, they you don't find out until it's already done. So first, let me just say to you, if you're listening, you're reading, you're observing wherever, on the internet, social media, listening to 24 news stations, uh, find somebody here to walk with you. Because I guarantee you, you're probably not enough of an expert to understand what that person is saying. You need a dialogue partner with somebody in the church. And so that's where I wanna turn. I wanna turn to what is it that we need to do to start to revitalize the church so that we are a place, we are a people, where people wanna come to us and have these kinds of conversations. They no longer think, oh, I need, I need to, to go to, to the, this, this person on the internet, this particular individual. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts 2, 37 through 47 is where we're going to read. And it's up on your screen also. And of course, Acts 2 is the... Famous moment where the disciples have gathered 120 in the upper room and the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them. And they have come out speaking in a way that everybody can hear what they're saying. They can understand what they're saying. People from all over the Mediterranean world are able to speak and hear their language from these people. This is the context as we move into Uh, verses 37 through 47. So let me read those to you. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter had just been preaching to them. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. And so I wanna focus here then on what what was going on in this first uh, sort of light of of the church. And I I just wanna point out to you What's the very first thing that happens when the Holy Spirit comes? Proclamation, proclamation. First, proclaiming when when they're being filled with the Spirit in these different tongues. And secondly, Peter gets up and begins to proclaim what he has received. I wanna say to you that we have to get back to that. Maybe this church is already good at that, I don't know. But a lot of the churches I go to within evangelicalism have gotten away from the proclamation of the word. And I can tell you, this is something that has been building up for 15, 20 years. Uh, If evangelicalism sort of reached its peak in its late 90s and early 2000s, that's when we started to see proclamation of the gospel start to take a backseat. I can remember I was in seminary and then I was uh, getting my doctoral work and then I was teaching And the students that I was teaching, they were saying to me that we needed to go out and change the world, to reform the world. This was gonna be our message. This was going to be how we were going to demonstrate the love of Christ. And of course, all these things are good, but I would ask them about, what about the proclamation? And kind of hesitate on that. Remember, these were the days when New ideas were coming forward for how we could reform the world. Uh, Sex trafficking, great thing. Human trafficking, uh, relieving debt in Africa. We even had Bono on our side from the U2. Remember that Bono was out there, a fellow traveler with us going and speaking with Jesse Helms on one hand and Eugene Peterson on the other. We were cool. We were going to change the world. And I just, I just asked him, but what happens when there's no new people coming into the pews? Like, but they will. And so I shared with them a little experiment I did back in the 90s. Uh, when I was out in California, I started a job at Borders Bookstore, and I decided that I was going to see if people could actually see Christ in me, if I said nothing. And so, I decided I was gonna be the best Christian I could possibly be. And I worked really hard at being kind and nice and working hard and all this sort of thing. This is Southern California, by the way. That's important to the story. And about three, four weeks into working there, I'm walking with the manager across the store And the manager just starts to say, Joe, you know, we're so happy that you decided to work with us. And she starts saying all these very nice, very complimentary sort of things. And, you know, I was like, you know, thank you. You're you're very kind. That's that's nice. Can I have a raise? And um, seriously, though, all of a sudden she says to me, Joe, you have the most beautiful karma. You have the most beautiful karma. I mean, you have to say thank you to that. You know, so first I said, thanks. But it hit me, right? It hit me. She's only going to see my actions through her glasses. That's her only way of interpreting. And so we ended up having a quick conversation when I told her why I was the things that she thought I was. And it was because of Jesus Christ. And... That I believe is where we are heading to today. We need to get back to that. This is, this is not fun. Nobody likes, to, it's so much easier to do good works. Let's just be honest with each other, right? So much easier. Everybody's gonna pat you on the back for helping the homeless. Everybody's gonna pat you on the back for all the different things you can do. The gospel is a stumbling block. Jesus says they will persecute you because of me. But I believe this is, this is my first suggestion to you on revitalizing the church is that we have to get back to sharing who we are with the people who we are. So I'm gonna call out Jeff Rasler here. He didn't know this, but uh, about two years ago, maybe a year ago, we were talking and he was telling me that he'd been reading this book, which he gave to me where this person was suggesting that for professors at universities, when they share who they are, they introduce themselves, they share, if they're a Christian, they they share that they're a Christian. And I remember Jeff said to me, I can do that. You know, and I thought, wow, what a fantastic step to take in that introduction. And Jeff went on to tell me, you have Bible studies going on in the engineering department. You know, and I'm like, well, I'm over here in the humanities. There's no Bible studies happening in the humanities, but uh, that's a joke, by the way. Um, you know, but, but I remember that, you know, where are you at? What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? How can you do it? How do we begin to get that new language that Bonhoeffer was talking about that has the same startling power of when Jesus Christ spoke it? My prayer is that we'll be praying for that language. Acts 2, when the spirit falls, they start speaking a language that the people can understand. What is our language for today? In our setting, where we work, where we live, what's our language to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because I guarantee you that what people are listening to, probably some of us are listening to on the internet, social media, 24-hour news channel, they are trying to convert you. It's not neutral. It's not neutral. This, this is a message that's trying to convert you to a particular point of view. We have been called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bring people to him, And in a world where identity and community are where people are aligning themselves, new identities, new communities, the church is actually situated perfectly for that conversation. Because we are calling people to a new identity in Jesus Christ and a new community with those who follow him. We have a message. We have the message. So this leads into my second point then, which is, um, read with me again, Acts 2, 42 through 46. I'm not gonna read it all, but I wanna remind you of what is there. Acts 2, 42 through 46. Look what's going on there. They are reading and studying the scriptures, listening to the teaching of the apostles. They are devoted to that. Devoted, the scripture says, they're devoted to the teaching and learning. They are together eating and doing table fellowship together. You're gonna to find a commonality here pretty soon. They are praying together, together. They are experiencing signs and wonders together. They are sharing their, posi- their possessions with those in need, together. They are glad and generous, praising God together, and they are receiving favor from others and adding to their number together. This is the hardest part of trying to revitalize the American evangelical church. The scriptures and the early church call us to a new family of God. Why do I say this is the hardest? We are individualist to the core, and I am guilty as I am as individualistic as anybody in this room, but the scriptures call us to a new family of God, a family that is meant to inculcate the truth of the gospel and our identity with Jesus Christ. It's the family, the people of God together over the individual. But it goes deeper than this. It also is talking, the scriptures are teaching us, about thinking of each other as brothers and sisters. We are to be having sibling relationships. Paul, if you remember, in the book, uh, his letter to uh, Philemon, um, Calls Philemon to think of Onesimus as not a bond servant anymore, not a slave anymore, but to think of him as a brother. Jesus points to this. Of course, Jesus says. Of course, Jesus is always saying amazing things. I always tell my Bible studies: Jesus is not seeker sensitive. Matthew 12, 48, Jesus points to this. He says, but Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, somebody had said, hey, your mothers and brothers are here. Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? That's an odd thing to say, isn't it? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, this crowd, he said, behold my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven. He is my brother, sister, and my mother, a new family of God, new family of God. If we're gonna, re, if we're gonna have to develop a new language, I'm convinced it's gonna come out of reorienting ourselves to think of ourselves as a new family of God and starting the painful process of breaking down our individualism. I don't even wanna do that as I'm saying it to you. I actually like being an individualist, a hyper-individualist, but it has to be done. And the scriptures, more importantly, are calling us to do it. Joseph Hellerman in his great book, The Ancient Church as Family says this, it is here I suggest that the church model offered the kind of organizing power and integrating vision they gave the early Christians their social identity and ability, I'm sorry, and stability. And that made their communities so attractive to displaced and fragmented urbanites in antiquity. Lucian, a critic of the church said this, the first lawgiver, Jesus, persuaded them that they are all brothers to one another. He's saying that with disdain, like they actually believed that. They actually believed that. Jesus convinced them. This, this huckster convinced them of that. That's how prevalent it was. The critics saw it. The emperor Julian, who was not a Christian. Why do we not observe that it is in their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead and the pretended holiness of their lives, that, their li- that have done the most to increase atheism? That's what he called Christianity when the impious Galileans, that's us, support not only their own poor, but ours as well, all men see that our people lack aid from us. So proclamation leads to taking care of each other. Proclamation puts us in a position as people who've experienced the new birth and received the Holy Spirit, that we are empowered to help each other. We can do that now. We can bring about the sort of reforms that we're talking about, but the ordering is critical. The ordering is critical. If you start with social reform first, you're going to get a dead church. You have to start with proclamation that brings new birth, that brings life, that brings change. Let me end with this as we start to reimagine the church in our context um, the first few centuries of the church did amazing things. It, it brought people from every position in life together, prostitutes, wealthy people, powerful people, widows, uh, people of different races, uh, people who uh, were, were uh, practicing different kinds of sexuality, war, peace issues, slavery, politics. It brought them together in Jesus Christ into a new community. This is the difference, my friends, between what's happening on the internet and social media and the news channels today and authentic Christianity. What's happening there is about tribalism. It's about finding people who think like you and then telling you you're great and leading you somewhere. Christianity, just the opposite. We are called to bow the knee to the savior and the Lord of the world and to come together through Christ. That's that's our point of unity. That's our new identity. That's the new family of God. So let's close then with just returning to Acts 2, 47. I'll remind you of that. 47 says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This by the way is not a, a call for a new megachurch mentality. This is a call for deep discipleship that's where we have fallen down. That's why people are attracted to other voices because we don't know the voice of the shepherd, the good shepherd. Deep discipleship is where we must go with this. Nehemiah 2.18, which has become sort of a hallmark verse for me, talks about uh, Nehemiah when he's talking to the people and he says, says, "And, and I told them, of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that, that the king had spoken to me. And, they, and, and he's saying to them, because Nehemiah had come to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he said to the people, uh, they said to him, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work. That's my call to you, brothers and sisters in Christ time to strengthen our hands. It's time for construction, the work of construction. It's time to begin to speak the right word in the right way and at the right time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for sending your spirit to guide us and lead us. And I, I pray for TCBC and its history, both long ago and near. I pray Lord that you would, would uh, come in here and revitalize this church, bring it back to a place, bring it to a place of strengthen in you in Christ. And as a community, the new family of God, who learns the language a proclamation in this century for this campus this time in jesus name amen